Open up your Bibles this morning to the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. <laughs> They're excited. <laughs> Daniel chapter 5. Thank you, Jeff, for preaching the Word of God last week in my absence. Thank you for your faithfulness, and I really appreciate it. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help once again this morning. Father, help us now as we once again open up your word. Help us to know what your word says and means and to make the appropriate application to our lives. I pray for those who are watching online or as well for those who are here. Do your work in people, whether that would be sanctification or that would be salvation. May your spirit do what you've sent it to do. In your name, amen. Two weeks ago, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled greatly after his second God-given dream was fulfilled. If you will remember with me, after a walk on his porch, he showed and continued to show great pride. And then God inflicted him with that judgment of making him think he was an ox, and he spent a considerable amount of time going crazy, eating grass, sleeping outside, wet with the dew of heaven. He remained like that until he repented, and he acknowledged God as the true sovereign king and Lord. And it is God who sets up kings and tears down kings. God is in control, not Nebuchadnezzar. As we come to chapter 5, we're going to fast forward, and we're going to fast forward a lot there's a lot, there's a long gap of time. And it's not very obvious right away as you begin reading the chapter, but we're going to fast forward 70 years since the beginning of chapter 1. Chapter 1, you remember that Daniel and his friends were exiles from Judah, being exiled there under God's wrath of their nation. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, bringing them captive to his empire. In chapter 5, it's been 25 years since Nebuchadnezzar has died. And Daniel, as you can imagine, is a much older man at this time. He came as a young teenager. So fast forward 70 years, and Daniel is in his 80s. We no longer see him as the young man as we did in the beginning of this story, but now as an aged man. Notice I didn't say old. Because <laughs> I think there might be a few in their 80s in this room. An aged, wise man. We see here that there's a new king in chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is no longer the king. He's been dead for two decades. And several people ascended to the throne after Nebuchadnezzar. There was a struggle for power like there normally is. And after Nebuchadnezzar's death, in the three years that preceded, it, there was three other kings that rose. And they were son-in-laws and grandsons to Nebuchadnezzar. So who sits on the throne as we get to the beginning of chapter 5? His name is Belshazzar, King Belshazzar. It's important to note here, as we go through chapter 5, 
that chapter 5 says that Nebuchadnezzar, that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. If you were think with me, though, that when the word son is used, it sometimes doesn't refer to, like, father and son. It refers to predecessors, being in the same line of. For example, Jesus is a son of David. David was not his father, but David was a predecessor of Jesus. And so in this same way, Belshazzar is a grandson to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's in that son lineage of the king. The king at this time is not just Belshazzar, but there's another king. No, um, <laughs> I knew I was going to have trouble saying it. Nabonidus. You see what I mean? Belshazzar, this is Belshazzar's father. And very interestingly, this, his father is known by historians as being the king of Babylon at this time, as the last king of Babylon. However, for many years and long time, critics and skeptics and Bible deniers criticize the authenticity of the book of Daniel because Belshazzar is never mentioned anywhere in history or historical records. But something interesting happened in the 1880s when a discovery was made by archaeologists that discovered a cuneiform cylinder that mentioned this king with a son named Belshazzar. And the Bible, of course, was proven to be true. The, nowhere else has the name Belshazzar been seen in the world except in the Bible. And people criticize the Bible saying, see, the Bible's inaccurate, it's not true. There's no other historical record for this. And that's not the first time that's happened. It's happened many, many times where the Bible is, is uh, proven true. His father, the king, left Arabia for Arabia for 10 years, according to the historical record, leaving Belshazzar with the throne. So when we get to chapter 5, his father is gone. And it's just the son, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar. What is chapter 5 all about? It is about the end of the Babylonian Empire. Remember, this is exactly what the dream was that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the giant statue that he had a dream of that went away like the shaft in the wind? At the top of the statue, the gold head was Nebuchadnezzar, and then there was silver arms and chest and breastplate. That represented the next kingdom, and then you had bronze and, and clay and iron and all that that followed after that. That's what's about to happen. Babylon's time is about to end. Their world dictatorship and empire is about to end. Their power is diminished and the Medo-Persian army is about to take over. And this is what you need to understand, which is not very clear from the beginning of chapter 5. But the historical record states this, and chapter 5 at the end states this, that at the beginning of chapter 5, the armies of the Medo-Persian Empire are literally pounding at the gates of the city. They are ready to take over and to kill the king. They've been trying this for two to three months, but they have not been able to breach the city. They've not been able to get inside and overtake Babylon. Chapter 5 is a story of how that happens. 
and God's judgment upon Babylon and this king, Belshazzar. And so there was a lot of confidence and pride that played into Belshazzar. Babylon was a very fortified city and literally surrounding it, ready to pounce upon it. This false hope that they would never be overtaken, that they could never breach those walls, that they would forever be safe was in the minds of those residents and the king. So we'll see what happens. So what do you do when another powerful people is about ready to make war with you and they're pounding on the gates, ready to get in for two or three months? What do you do? Well, you have a party. And that's exactly what happens at the beginning of chapter 5. Look at this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lord, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here they are having a party. What are reasons to have a party at this time? One, he's probably doing it to calm the fears of the people. I don't really buy that as the only reason. I think, number one, he's just too confident. He's just so prideful that they can't be taken down. That the city walls cannot fall. He thinks he is too safe. So let's just party. And he does. He throws a giant feast with a thousand people, thousands of people in attendance. And they have a massive end. Nobody partied back then like the Babylonians. There was a lot of history back then with wine flowing and the food and plentiful party party. That's what they did. But this was not just a party. This was a religious feast. Because what they were also doing was worshiping their gods. And perhaps they're praying to their Babylonian deities about saving them from what's coming up. And maybe they're trying to appease them for their help. Probably that takes into account. But Daniel writes here that Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, which is another way to say that he had become drunk, He orders the gold and the silver vessels that had been stolen from the temple in Jerusalem to be brought and to be used as props, like red solo cups, to everyone in attendance. Everyone get your marker and you write on the cup your name. Remember that these gold and silver vessels were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem when Babylon invaded Judah 70 years ago. And they had taken those things, and these were prized possessions to say how they had defeated the God of Israel and defeated the Jews. They were doing this to mock them and to say, this is the victory that we've had. And we took down Judah, and look, there have been our slaves for 70 years. Nothing is going to stop us and thwart us. Like his grandfather before him, Belshazzar walked in great pride. 
Not just throwing a party with all these nobles before him, but all of the women as well. One of the things the Babylonians liked to do was throw huge orgies. Like this was a, quite the display of a party that's happening here. Surrounded by his wives and his concubines and his lords, those are his nobles, they partied on. Life is good, I'm immortal, nobody's going to take me out. And to prove it, in defiance of his grandfather, because remember, how did Nebuchadnezzar end his life? Nebuchadnezzar ended his life in repentance. Nebuchadnezzar ended his life being humbled by God and turning to the true God and, and realizing what had happened. And God restored to him everything that was taken away. In defiance to his grandfather's repentance, to this God, what does he do? Let's take out those things, those silver and gold things that, of that God, and let's use it in our party, our orgies, and our worship of our gods, the gods of stone and gold and wood and, stone and, uh, and bronze and silver. Let's worship our Babylonian gods, mocking the God of Israel. Hmm. Pride runs deep in this family, as it does in the hearts of every human being. Belshazzar is sick, twisted, and perverted. But most of all, he is deceived. He is deceived. And who has deceived him? His own heart has deceived him. About this same time, the prophet Jeremiah, writing from Jerusalem, I'm sorry, not the same time. Jeremiah writing from Jerusalem in his letter that the exiles would have had says this, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Belshazzar has lied to himself to think that he is this invincible being and that he can defy the God of Israel in spite of what happened to his grandfather in spite of what his grandfather did to defy the God of Israel, building the great statue, and he did not get the message that just as his grandfather was chopped down as a tree, so can he. Why? Because his heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are just like Belshazzar in lots of ways. We deceive ourselves into believing different things and and I tell people this often. Nobody lies to you more than you do. Nobody lies to you more than you. Look at verse 5. When he had tasted the wine and he had ordered that these golden and silver vessels from the temple be brought in with their perverse party. Look at verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared. And wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. So here he is, with some golden goblet in his hand from the temple, being all prideful and Fingers appear in midair. I don't know about you, but that would freak me out too. <laughs> fingers appear out of nowhere, and it terrifies him. The fingers appeared and wrote on the wall in plaster opposite the lampstand. So the whole idea here is it was bright and illuminated. So 
he could see what was being written on the wall. And he changed color, meaning he probably got as white as a ghost. He was so terrified at what he's looking. His thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, when he had the dreams and he wanted someone to interpret what the dreams were, it says that it alarmed him the same way. But this phrase, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together, that is the best English way to understand his terror. But the actual literal translation of that passage in the original language is, the joints of his loins were loosened. What does that sound like? Bible scholars believe this means more than meets the eye. It just wasn't that he was shaking in terror, but this phrase was a euphemism meant to say that he lost control of his bowels. In other words, he wet and soiled himself. He needed new underwear. He was so scared of what just happened that he lost control of his bodily fluids. Look at verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his Color changed, and his lords were perplexed, just like his grandfather. I mean, does this sound eerily familiar? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He didn't know what it meant. He called him for the wise men, and they couldn't tell him what his dream meant. Here, Belshazzar sees the hand, the writing on the wall. He calls for his wise men, and nobody can tell him the translation and what it means. And again, once he realizes that he is maybe doomed here, his color changes again. He is terrified at this whole experience. But what does he do? He is so desperate to know answers. What do rich people like to do in his situation? Just throw money at the situation. If you want to fix something, just throw money at it. That's what he does. Whoever tells me my answers will be third in the kingdom, will have a chain of gold, clothed in purple. He will have a high position of authority. He'll have riches, and he'll have a lot of prestige and power. This is why Jesus says that it is hard and difficult for rich people to be saved. Why? Because rich people think that they could buy their way out of all problems. Of course, not all rich people, but many rich people, thinking that money fixes everything, and money becomes a known trap of becoming one's own savior. If your money and power can fix everything, then why would you need to turn to God as savior? Why would you need to turn to God as your savior if money and power can control and fix everything? And he's at the end of his rope. He doesn't know what it means. He's terrified. The wise men, the best of the best in his kingdom, can't tell him what it means. Somebody has to tell me. Look at verse 10. The queen 
because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Don't you just love it when people tell you, don't freak out, calm down. That is the, what do you wind up doing? Freaking out and not calming down. You kind of do the opposite. It's kind of hard to do that, but this is kind of what she's telling him. O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. The queen here, many believe to be the surviving queen, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, or the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. She's the queen mother of the kingdom. She isn't with the other wives and concubines partying. She comes out of nowhere hearing what is going on and offers a solution. She enters the party. She sees Belshazzar white as a ghost, and she remembers back to the old days when Nebuchadnezzar had the same problem and says, you know what? There was a guy. Yeah, there was a guy that Nebuchadnezzar made to be the chief, and he helped him out. Maybe you should call him because this guy is pretty special. In him resides the spirit of the holy gods. There's something different and powerful about this guy named Daniel. Call him and stop worrying. Look at verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you could read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So let's picture this. Here's Daniel brought in. Daniel, as I said, is a man in his 80s. His skin is perhaps a little bit more wrinkled than it was before. He probably walks a little slower, has a little bit more aches and pains than he used to. Perhaps his memory isn't as sharp as it used to be. And here he comes in before the king. Belshazzar tells him his predicament. If you interpret my dream, I'll give you riches, make you royalty. You'll be the third in my kingdom. You've got to solve this puzzle for me, Daniel. Third in the kingdom. Don't forget his father was number one. He was number two. And so Daniel would be the third most powerful person in the kingdom. I mean, what a deal for Daniel, right? Purple clothes and power and prestige and gold chain. I'm going to essentially summarize what Daniel says. I can hear Daniel saying something like this. Hey, kid, 
I'm 80 years old. I don't even buy green bananas anymore. <laughs> this is not that tempting. Third in power, gold, I, I, I don't have a lot left. That, that doesn't even begin to persuade him. He says, but I don't care about what you're Give that to someone else. I, I don't even want anything. But I'll help you. I'll tell you what this dream means. He says in verse 18, O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. Daniel is still preaching the same sermon to the grandson. It's exactly what he was telling Nebuchadnezzar. I don't, know, I don't know why, but I just picture Daniel here like an old-timer telling a story back from the old days, giving wisdom for today's generation, right? Let this be a lesson to our younger people in this room. Don't dismiss the older generations. They have learned so much along the way and have so much wisdom and knowledge to impart to us. Enjoy them while you have them. Because one day you'll be like them. Don't dismiss them as being old. What do they know? They're not with it today. Well, Daniel is quite with it. Daniel is quite with it. And he's giving the same lesson that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what he says as he tells him. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship. That's what he told Nebuchadnezzar. God sets up kings and tears down kings. And because of the greatness that he gave him, he's trying to say, all that your grandfather was, he was because of God. He didn't get it on himself. God, by his sovereign decree, gave it to him. Essentially, what makes you think you are any different than he? You are in the same position because you just happen to be his grandson. And God has put you in power here. And God has given you everything that you have. But in turn, you have rebelled against God. You have, with your great pride, just like your grandfather, and your grandfather was a mighty man. I mean, anyone he wanted to kill, he killed. And if he wanted to keep you alive, he'd keep you alive. Those he wanted to raise up in power and give him a promotion, he did. And those he just was tired of, he got rid of. That's the kind your grandfather was. But he abused that authority given to him by God. Living with great pride. This is what he says in verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Wow. Belshazzar, this is what happened to your grandfather. 
because he would not humble himself, because he was a prideful man, God humbled him. But he repented. He came back. And verse 22 tells us the key to the story. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled, though you knew all this. This was not new information to Belshazzar. He knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what the God of Israel had promised in his dreams and what he had done and what, how it had been fulfilled and how he had been humbled. And in spite of all those warnings, in spite of all the judgment that he had faced, he still decided to rebel against that God. What a fool. Belshazzar failed to learn from the past. He did his own thing. Daniel says to him, what God judged your grandfather for, you are doing the same. You are doing the same. Perhaps we could think of some generational things that have happened in our families and in our lives. That those before us in our families have sinned against God and they've lived that way. And we know what that sin did to them, but yet we still continued in that sin despite what we know what happened to them. Let that be a warning to us. Despite you knew this, Belshazzar, and what pride does, that God is able to humble all those who walk in pride, you still did what you did. Wow. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And that you have praised the gods of silver and of gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You mocked God. Despite knowing what God did to your grandfather, you took out the golden vessels from the temple and used them as party favors. The God that gave you the breath that you're breathing right now, you are using that same breath to curse him instead of giving him the praise that he is due. You knew all this. You knew what that sin led to your grandfather. You saw your grandfather restored in repentance and praising the God of Israel. And yet, you did not learn. So let me tell you what this writing means on the wall in plaster. Verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent. Daniel tells him, this is the hand of God. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Thank you, Daniel. That's helpful. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Wow. Mene, mene. Two words, one word repeated twice. It means basically numbered, numbered. 
God has numbered your days, and today is your day. You have reached the end of your calendar, the end of your life, and it's repeated twice for emphasis. God has just not numbered your days. He has many, many. He has numbered, numbered your days Just like God drove your grandfather to the wilderness, that same God will now judge you in his wrath now. You have mocked him, and he will not be mocked. You have sought to rob him of his glory before all these people, using the things that were holy to him in the worship of your gods. You've been in safety and security in the realm of Babylon. The Persians are knocking at your door, and you think you are fine, but guess what? Party over. Belshazzar, the party is over. Today is your day. That's what that means. Today you will die. This is what the book of Hebrews says. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. We all... We all have a day that's been set before time began, written for all of us. We all have an expiration date. Unless the Lord Jesus returns before we die, we will all perish in this life. And if we are in Christ, we will not stay dead. We will live forever with him. But the point remains, everybody dies. It's appointed to die. Belshazzar, your number is up. Let us learn from the psalmist who says something similar. Psalm 39, 4 through 5. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Or as we sang earlier in the song, life is but a vapor. We're almost home. It's here and it's gone. And for Belshazzar, his time is about to expire. Mene, mene, God has numbered your days. When God says something once, it's important twice, woe. What's the second word, or really the third word, tekel? This is a word of measurement. And Daniel says that tekel means that you have been weighed in the balances, verse 27, and have been found wanting. This is what God is trying to tell to Belshazzar. God has weighed you, your motives, your actions, your life, and you have been found wanting or lacking. What you have been, what you have in you is insufficient. God has put you on the scales of justice and you don't measure up. You are a sinner, O Belshazzar, and you have been found guilty, condemned, unrighteous. You have been found wanting. Now remember, what did Belshazzar have? He had the kingdom. He had a thousand lords at his request to party with him. He had wives and concubines. He had never-ending wine, never-ending food, never-ending safety, he thought, in his realm. 
And God says, I've weighed you, and you thought you had it all, but in the end, you've got nothing. There's a saying that says, um, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. You've probably heard that before. It's not true. If you die with the most toys, you still die. You'll never see a U-Haul in the back of a hearse. You can't take anything from this life with you. When you die, everything you've ever accumulated is meaningless for you anymore. Or like Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Daniel is saying here, interpreting the message from God, your riches won't save you, your power won't save you, your wisdom won't save you, your prestige and position won't save you. You are lacking. You are found wanting. And when you weigh, when God weighs you on the scale of justice, he doesn't weigh you in reference to other people. He doesn't weigh me Compared to Hitler and say, well, Dan is better than Hitler, so I guess Dan goes to heaven because he's a better person. That's not how that works. When God puts us on the weights, which of course is a symbolic way of judging and assessing us. When God assesses our measurements, if you will, to use the words here, God compares us on a scale. He puts us on the one side and he puts him and his law on the other We need to compare ourselves in reference to his holiness and his righteousness. And when you do, you will know you will all fall short. This is what the scriptures say. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every human being ever born is just like Belshazzar. Belshazzar just had more toys than us. More wine, more so-called fun more partying, more power, but he still dies just like everyone else, and he dies with nothing. He dies falling short of the glory of God, and he stands in judgment of God. The only thing that could save Belshazzar was faith in this God. The only thing that makes us righteous, the only thing that adds to us any credit to our account is nothing that we could produce in ourselves is nothing that we have accumulated in this life but the righteousness of God given to us by faith in which we are declared righteous and holy not because of our works but because of Christ who obeyed for us and who perfectly satisfied everything that God required your church membership won't save you your relationships with other people won't save you it doesn't matter if you're Dad is a a pastor or a deacon or your mom's a Sunday school teacher or it doesn't matter. What saves you is your relationship to God. And a person who is to be found righteous, a person who is to be saved, first needs to understand that they have nothing to give to God. And they come to God empty, unworthy, knowing that they stand in condemnation And that only by faith in this God that God can justify them and make them righteous. 
or declare them to be righteous, I should, I should say. This is all that matters. But here at the end of his life, notice what happens. You have been found wanting. You're of no value right now. Everything you've ever accumulated doesn't matter when you die. And the last word, parson. Daniel says this means your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Yeah, Belshazzar, the same people who are knocking at the gates right now, who are dying to get in here, who couldn't get in here for the last three months and you thought you were fine and safe and they're eventually going to get tired and go away, guess what? God has given them your kingdom. Your day has expired and now everything you have will go to them. The Medes and the Persians are the next empire after Babylon. Look it up in history. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was in the beginning. The giant statue that he saw. He was the head of gold, Babylon. Then there was the silver arms and breastplate. That's the Medo-Persian Empire. But the Medo-Persian Empire doesn't last forever because after them, Greece comes. And that's history. Greece overtook the Medo-Persian Empire. And after Greece, Greece doesn't last forever. Alexander the Great didn't last forever. What happened? Rome came and took over them. There's only one everlasting kingdom, and that's the kingdom of our God. All these kingdoms fall. God has given them your kingdom. He's divided it to the Medes and the Persians. You're about to find out what your grandfather found out. It is God who sets up kings and tears down kings. You are being torn down, and they are being set up. The difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar is the grace of God. Notice in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there was hope of repentance. There was hope of restoration. If Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and realized what the true God did, there is no hope of restoration. There is no grace for Belshazzar. There is no, well, maybe there will be a stump left after God chops down the tree. No, you're done. God is under no obligation to give grace or mercy. He is totally just in all of his justice to condemn sinners. And this is what happens to Belshazzar. Look at verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. I can see Daniel saying, really? I, bro, I just told you, you're not going to be king in just a few minutes. Third in the kingdom, this is worthless. Really? Perhaps he was so drunk out of his mind, he can't think straight. Maybe he's so scared, he's trying to change Daniel's opinion of him. Maybe Daniel means something different. Remember what I'm going to give you. We're not told. But what a pointless endeavor. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, that Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received his kingdom, being about 62 years old. That very night, that very night, the Medo-Persian Empire breached the walls of Babylon. And the Bible doesn't give us 
any more specific details about that. But what we know from history is this. Very interesting. Because that discovery in 1881 with the cuneiform gave the history of what happened to Belshazzar. And that this archaeological, you know, discovery... Even mentions, and this is not the Bible, this is historical record from the Medo-Persian Empire, records that that night that they breached the walls and entered Babylon, that Babylon was having a massive party, just as Daniel 5 describes. You think the Bible is accurate? That wasn't discovered until 1881 and now stands in a museum in Great Britain. That cuneiform cylinder that gave the history there. What it says is that night the Persian army did make its way in. What they did is they drilled a tre- they dug a trench, diverting the waters from the Euphrates River, because the Euphrates River ran right through Babylon. They they diverted the waters from the Euphrates away so that the river lowered and they were able to go underneath the city and breach the city. It sounds brilliant, but what happened? God said, hey guys, good idea, go on in. The sovereignty of God, the decree of God, the providence of God to bring judgment on Belshazzar. And Babylon the Great has fallen. The mighty Babylon, which overtook nations, kingdoms, even the nation of Judah, and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, has now faced its same fate as they gave out. Just like God told Nebuchadnezzar what happened in his first dream, the head of gold is no more. Just as God raised Babylon to invade and judge his people, he has now raised up the Medo-Persian Empire to invade and destroy Babylon. And eventually the Medo-Persian Empire will be taken out by the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire is taken out by the Roman Empire. And it just keeps going on and on and on. The judgment and wrath of God. God will not be mocked. He is able to humble all those who walk in pride. So repent and turn to Christ to be saved. This is the only way, friends. This is the only way. Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me. We all are found wanting. We are all weighed on those scales. And we are all found falling short of God's glory and standard. And if we die in our sins, we will face the wrath of God forever. However, there is good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners like you and me. And for all those who place their faith in him, believing that he died for them and rose again on the third day, you will be saved. You will be saved from your sins and you will be restored to right relationship with God. This is what it's all about. For all those who are walk in pride, he is able to humble. We've seen it with Nebuchadnezzar, we saw it with Belshazzar, and we see it with all future kingdoms that come after that. They are all no more. There's no more Rome, there's no more Greece, there's no more Medo-Persian empires. God sets up kings and tears down kings. He is the sovereign ruler of creation. Repent, believe in him. If you have any questions about what that means, I'd love to talk to you more. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your your word. Thank you so much for your grace to us.
Lord, you are not obligated to give grace or mercy to anybody. By your loving kindness and goodness, you offer this grace to sinners. Lord, that's everybody who's in this room is a sinner. And Lord, you give your grace to whom you will. You save whom you will. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in hearts and for those who are needing to hear this message, that they would hear the message that Belshazzar had. For Belshazzar, it led to his quick judgment and death and, and the end of his life. Father, for those who hear Belshazzar's warning today in this room and online, may they not respond like Belshazzar, but may they respond in faith crying out to God for mercy, for forgiveness, believing that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, confessing that he died and rose again from the dead as their substitute. Father, help us. Help us in this room for all those listening that they would be saved. And Father, all of us who even know you today, Lord, we're... We're not perfect. We, are, we remain sinners. We remain falling short, but we have a Savior who loves us and forgives us. For those of us who walk in pride, humble us. Humble us, God. Bring us to humility. If not, grant us humility so that we could humble ourselves. We're at your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and sing a closing hymn together this morning. Again, if I could help you in any way, please see me after the service. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. What an appropriate song to sing as we close. Let's sing together.